When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In my first speech in 1996, I said we were in danger of being swamped by Asians. Now we are in danger of being swamped by Muslims who bear a culture and ideology that is incompatible with our own. This is Pauline Hanson, the leader of the One Nation Party in Australia. Muslims are imprisoned at almost three times the average rate. The rate of unemployed and public dependency is two to three times greater than the national average. This is a speech she made to the Senate in September 2016. Hanson was re-elected two months earlier. It was the first time she spoke to the Senate in 18 years. There is no sign saying good Muslim or bad Muslim. How many lives will be lost or destroyed trying to determine who is good and who is bad? During the speech, senators from the Green Party staged a walkout, but did so alone. The rest of the House of Representatives listened patiently, clapped and congratulated Hansen on her return. Some even hugged her. Have no doubt that we will be living under Sharia law and treated as second-class citizens with second-class rights if we keep heading down the path with the attitude, she'll be right, mate. Therefore, I call for stopping further Muslim immigration, banning the burqas. No more mosques or schools should be built. Shockwaves went through the Muslim community. For them, this speech and Pauline's return signaled a shift in the war on terror one where the mistrust and anger that had once lurked below the surface was now in full force. So to all my peers in this place and those from the past, I have two words for you. I'm back, but not alone. I'm Muhammad Hassan, and this is Public Enemy. Australia has had a long and complicated history with domestic terrorism. The Sydney Hilton bombing in 1978 the Hakoa Club bombing in 1982, the Turkish consulate bombing in 1986, the French consulate bombing in 1995, the list goes on. Oh, none of these were done by Muslims, by the way. It wasn't until the Bali bombings in 2002, which killed 88 Australian tourists, that organizations like Al-Qaeda came into the picture. Two years later, the John Howard government passed controversial anti-terror laws that gave sweeping powers to law enforcement to monitor, search, and detain even those who weren't suspects. This would pave the way for countrywide police raids that struck fear into the lives of ordinary Muslims. Protesters demanded crackdowns on Islamic way. At the end of the day, you can either be a Muslim or an Australian. Police turned up in force across Western Sydney this morning, raiding homes following last week's terrorist murder. 200 police officers launched raids on homes across Western Sydney. Just on dawn, four homes raided and a series of arrests. An 18-year-old stabbed two counter-terrorism police. It pains me to say in Western Sydney there is a Muslim problem. Inspired by the Islamist death cult. A violent Islamist idiot. Just to clarify, Sonia, are you saying that you would like our borders closed to Muslims at this point? Yes, I would. I would. A report by the Human Rights Commission in 2004 
found Muslim communities experienced increasing levels of discrimination, fear and alienation. For many in the Lebanese community, this had been a reality for some time. Yeah, my name is Mohamed Taba. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Melbourne in criminology and law. And, and where are we right now? We're in Coburg, Melbourne, um, one of the multicultural hubs of Melbourne. Uh, growing up in Coburg was interesting because it, it has a strong Lebanese presence, strong Muslim presence, and for the most part, a favourable presence. Of course, you have your, your problems. One of the main problems I had growing up was with police, um, constantly being picked on, uh, you know, abused by police, harassment, that sort of thing. Um, and this is from seven years onwards, you know, seven years old onwards. And that's constant. That still happens till now with, with the younger kids here. So you were seven years old and you were getting picked on by the police? Yeah, all of us. It wasn't me. It was all of us. Yeah. Well, that, that's pretty regular. So what kind of treatment were you getting? Um, well, basically, you'd be walking around with friends, you know, just doing what kids do. Um, you know, police car stops, gets out, starts harassing you, swearing at you, calling you effing lebo and those sorts of things. Um, there has been, not, not with seven-year-olds, but there has been cases of physical abuse, you know, myself included, uh, being pepper sprayed, being bashed, those sorts of things. Um, these are all talking young teens, hmm. you know, maybe 12, 13-year-olds. Yeah, just all of these tactics that constantly remind you that you're not welcome here. School was different. For one thing, half of his classmates were Lebanese, so everyone got along. But, as with everything else, it all changed on 9-11. And the next day there was this just intense tension uh, in the classrooms, in the common rooms, everywhere, all over the school. And it was basically the elephant in the room. You know, it created fault lines within friendships, you know, people we'd been hanging out with for five, six years all of a sudden became really edgy. Um, teachers, you know, throwing comments around. Yeah, so it changed dramatically. Just That's just within the school. Within Australia, it was, yeah, it was a very tense period. Um, there was a lot of fear within the Muslim community. I mean, I was, I was in high school still, so I was quite young. But um, the fear was palpable. Everybody was scared. Um, you know, our parents were warning us of not going out, not talking, you know, not identifying as Muslim, those sorts of things. So it was a real... Real climate of fear, I would say. Fast forward to now, to today, in the last few years, how do you think it's changed? How do you think the situation is now compared to back then? It's interesting because it's a little bit less intense, but it's much more normalised. So we're, we've just become so used to that fear and suspicion and harassment that now it's, at least for my part, it's less fear and more just tired. You know, we're really tired of this. Uh, there's a constant complaint that I hear within the community um, when is this going to end? Because basically every single week you have multiple incidents where either, you know, maybe some Muslim woman has been bashed on the street, you know, maybe there's a new terrorism case, you know, there's an accused that we, with a plot that's played out in the media, you know, there's new legislation that's proposed or passed, and we're talking about 15 years now of that life. Looking at the terror raids, there was a massive countrywide operation uh, there were multiple agencies involved there were massive scenes of, of armed police storming houses what did that do to a the individuals that were involved but also the Muslim community well the individuals involved I've known a number of them personally so I've spoken to them at length um, there was a case in 2012 just before the protest one of the um, houses that was raided there was an elderly woman in there she actually fainted um, had to be taken to hospital. She was in a coma for a little while. The effect on those raided is, is pretty obvious. You know, it's, it can be quite traumatic. Some of them were, we offered them, you know, to, to get psych, uh, psychological help and they were too scared to seek help even. Um, they were just really rattled. 
On the Muslim community, again, it's interesting because one of the things that I've often criticized with uh, police raids is um, there's a lot of theatrics involved, and that's often deliberate. So with some of the raids, uh, with the raids in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, um, there was a controversy because the, the details of the raids were leaked to the media before the warrant for the raid was even granted. So the media were on the scene before the police. Mm. It was quite dangerous because what the media did, now they couldn't mention the exact address of those raided, but what they did is they took a photo and they said, in this street, next to this house number and next to this one, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And of course the people living there, you know, some of them had to, had to leave. Their house have been in 15, 20 years because they're scared now. Mm. You know, you have reprisal attacks, people coming past and threatening, and at the very least their neighbours refused to speak to them after that. And none of them were ever charged in these cases. So I think there's been a real effort by police and authorities to let the Muslim community know that they're under watch, that they're under a cloud of suspicion. And I think this is, um, for some quarters, leading to increased passivity, but for others, in leading towards increased activism, and some of it is, is dangerous. Looking at the last few years and the number of very public, very high-profile attacks that have happened, killing, stabbings of, of police, um, the Sydney siege, doesn't that justify, in a way, the counter-terrorism laws that are in place, the terror raids, the, the clamped down by the government? Look, that's a pretty common argument. Um, my question would be to say, why not look at it in reverse? Because the, the war on terror discourse will often place Muslim violence as the initiation of violence. In reality, if you look at the facts, it's the other way around. Muslim violence is most often a response. Um, so in this case, the, the war on terror came before the reprisal attacks. Um, and we should not underestimate what the war on terror did. Okay, you're talking about invasions, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths, you're talking about laws, practices, even just the climate of suspicion and fear and anger that we feel every single day. You know, getting on a train, being called a terrorist or a raghead, um, being spat at, you know, from a passing car, those sorts of things. So I don't think, I mean, this is not a justification at all for the violence, which, which I'm completely against. Uh, my point is to say the way we frame these things is important. And again, if we think about terrorism as a, as a way of speaking, as a form of speaking, then to frame these in such a problem, problematic matter, I think, is, is to be counterproductive in trying to end this violence, this cycle of violence. In September 2014, the government announced it would further expand anti-terror laws to revoke citizenships of those they thought were a threat. They also carried out the largest ever round of raids in homes all over Sydney and Brisbane, involving more than 800 police officers. In the end, only two people were charged, one for having an unlicensed gun. But just three months after that... On 7 News tonight, terror in Sydney. City streets still in lockdown as at least one Islamic gunman terrorises up to 30 hostages in the Lindt Cafe. I'm standing in Martin Place right now in the heart of the Sydney CBD. It's bustling, it's busy, people are going to and from work. There's tourists, there's people out for coffee in business suits on the phone. There's a lot happening right now. Right in front of me, 151 Phillips Street, is the infamous Lindt Cafe. It's quiet, it's unassuming, you could walk right past it and not know it's there. But on December 15th, two years ago, almost to the day, at 9.44 a.m., a man by the name of Man Monis walked inside, armed, and took it hostage. And for the next 17 hours, the entire city was completely shut down. 
the train stopped, the buses stopped, and the entire city watched. Um, well, I was actually in Chicago during the Sydney siege, mm. but I did not sleep that night <laughs> with the time difference. I was glued to my glued to the hotel television screen, and it was just frightening because my initial reaction was, "Oh, oh my mum is in Sydney, my family um, are in Sydney. I don't want anything to happen to them." This is Esmat Fahmi. She's from Sydney. And being far away and not being able to to do anything was just frightening. Everybody was just texting each other all day, sending each other videos, sending each other support messages, um, what Muslims should be doing, how to protect yourself during this time, because unfortunately we do experience collective punishment whenever something happens. It wasn't all bad. The I'll Ride With You campaign emerged through social media with a pledge to protect Muslims from any retaliatory attacks on public transport. It was a surprising sign of solidarity that helped many in the community draw strength in the days that followed. But it didn't stop the attacks. I was on my way to work and I was on the phone talking to a friend and I just felt um, a heavy push from behind me. I just saw a man's leg in between my legs and I realised he was trying to force me down. And then when I looked up, I just saw a man just really incensed almost spitting out his words. I think he was actually spitting. He called me an effing terrorist. And then he just kept going on and on. And I, I was waiting for him to finish, but I was also crippled with fear because he was physically a lot bigger than, than I am. And um, he was obviously very angry. And when you're dealing with angry people, you, you don't really want to provoke them. I was hoping somebody would intervene, and unfortunately, nobody did. Um, you know, there were people that worked at the local cafe. They knew me, and they saw the incident. They didn't do anything or help me, or even after the man had left, nobody asked me if I was okay. Um, it was just a very, um, it was a horrible experience. So why do you think that, that none of the other people even checked up on you to see if you were okay afterwards? I have no idea why nobody helped. Um, had it been me, I would have definitely gone to the person and said, are you okay, at the very least. I honestly, I hope to God that it's not because they think that, you know, oh, I deserve it or that this has now become so commonplace that people don't even bat an eyelid. A year later, Asma and her mother were leaving the theatre and heading to their car when they were pelted with eggs by a group of drunk men from the balcony yelling racial slurs at them. In both cases, Asmat says the police refused to investigate. When you're, when you're out and about, you just have to be more vigilant. You, you shouldn't be alone, I suppose, um, which is sad because, you know, nobody should, should be frightened in their own country, in their own home where they've grown up. But, yeah, you just have to be more vigilant and more aware um, and know that, you know, if you're, if you're a visible Muslim, then you, you, you might be a target. According to Shakira Hussein from the National Centre of Excellence in Islamic Studies, Muslim women have borne the brunt of Islamophobia. She recently published a book, From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11, and the title speaks for itself. Fifteen years ago, she says, Muslim women were seen as oppressed and vulnerable. Immediately after 9-11, there were no visible Muslim women in Australian media, and there was a demand afterwards for Muslim women's voices to participate in media and Muslim women were sometimes seen as like the safer option 
to have to be this calm voice of reason on current affairs shows and in public debates, you know, and it's the non-scary option rather than a Muslim male. But soon things began to shift as Muslim women took on public roles. High-profile media commentators like Maryam Visada, the country's first female Muslim MP, and Ali, the captain of the Royal Australian Navy, Mona Shindi. Communities which are seen as failing are obvious targets for racism because, you know, they're losers and dragging their own communities down with them and so on. But then the most vicious racism is going to be directed at communities which are seen as succeeding, which are seen as getting ahead. And getting ahead is always assumed to be at everyone else's expense. And so the visible success stories, the Muslim women, again, who are working as lawyers, as educators, leading quote-unquote normal Australian lives, are seen as if anything more problematic than those who are not educated, not working, assumed not to be leaving the house most, because they're the ones who are potentially changing the society the most. Muslims make up just over 2% of the population, double that of the US. But despite Pauline Hansen's fears of a takeover, they're only the fourth largest religious group in Australia, after Christians, atheists and Buddhists. But that hasn't shifted the rapid rise of more than 39 far-right groups across the country, all with the self-described aim of protecting Australia from multiculturalism and stopping Muslims from imposing Sharia law on all Australians. Quote, We love the Muslim people but oppose their texts and Islamic doctrine and ideology because it is oppressive and incompatible with the Australian way of life. That's from the party Rise Up Australia's website. They have only one councillor, Rosalie Cristani, in the city of Casey in Victoria. So earlier this year, there was an application for a mosque in my area that was um, rejected. That's Ines Janif, a high school teacher from, you guessed it, the city of Casey. We had certain councillors who made statements such as Muslims should go back to where they came from publicly and also say that they'd never support any mosque application anywhere because of fears of terrorism and the like. It didn't stop there. A billboard put up by some in the Muslim community calling for a mosque to be built was burnt down in the middle of the night. I remember when I was a child when my community tried to build a local mosque and certain statements were made that Muslims will make human sacrifices, that there will be a whaling tower 24-7 and so on and so on. Wow. Really? So, yeah, and sacrifices. this happens, human sacrifices. I don't know how I'm still standing here, <laughs> you know. I'm still standing here. <laughs> um, it's not just about the mosque, because I personally have know of friends who have had their hijabs torn off. I've also ha- have had friends driven off the road, and they're not just, um, you know, people who've recently migrated into the country and they're not sure. These are tertiary educated, strong individuals, and yet they too are subject to these um, sorts of hate. And both of these friends that have had this happen to them had been brushed off when they reported the crimes. Rise Up Australia and Pauline Hansen's One Nation aren't the only two parties with skin in the game. Protest groups like Reclaim Australia the United Patriots Front and my personal favourite, the True Blue Crew, held dozens of rallies across the country for more than two years. 
Seven months before her election to the Senate, Hansen spoke at one of these rallies. It makes me sick to look out amongst this crowd and think each one of us has a potential target on our heads by extreme individuals and terrorist groups. Pauline Hansen is back. Do you guys hear about this? Pauline is back. Yeah, where's the border control, I say? Where's the offshore, where's the offshore detention center for her? Pauline Hansen is coming back because she's upset with Europe. You know, she made a big deal of that. She was leaving Australia for good. And then when she was leaving, she was like, yeah, I'm leaving, but I'm definitely not selling my house to a Muslim. Because, you know, there were like hundreds of Muslim families lining up to buy our house, right? Oh, where should we raise the kids, honey? I know, in the house of a white supremacist. Amir Rahman came to prominence as part of the comedy duo Fear of a Brown Planet. And Pauline's very disappointed because she went to Europe and she's found Europe's been overrun by Muslims and refugees and migrants. So she's coming back to learn what I've always known, which is between mandatory detention, offshore processing and the Northern Territory intervention, when it comes to racism, there's no place like home. <laughs> okay, did you notice this clip was from six years ago? I didn't. Could have been yesterday, right? They're so terrified of her, right? They've created, they've, over the last 15 years, they, like, both parties have paved the way for her to return. And now that she's back, you know, it's like she's come back from the dead and she has superpowers. People are, the parties are so terrified of her. They're so terrified of bleeding more votes to her demographic. The only consolation for me is that we had our election before the U.S. Because if Trump had been elected before we went to our election the far right would have gone so much harder. Do you think that Pauline Hansen and the One Nation Party are as representative of Australia as they think they are, or as they say they are? Well, the other thing is that, you know, like the, the sweep that you've seen in the US and the UK with Brexit and probably what we're about to see in France, like that hasn't happened in Australia, mm. right? One Nation hasn't like swept to power, but I would say that's because the major parties already offer that outlet in terms of how extreme their their vision is on race and how extreme their rhetoric is on race. So how do you do a comedy in, in this, this kind of climate? I haven't I haven't done comedy in a long time. I haven't done it in a long time, especially after having my son. Like, I really, the things that I used to find funny now are just like, this is not even worthy of satire. Like, this is like really terrifying. There's a really terrifying global trend now. Do you think it's worse now than it was after 9-11? Yeah, definitely. In Australia, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Because even after 9-11, you couldn't on television talk about banning Muslims. Hmm. But now you can, even in Australia. You know? Even when it happened, in, even after they started talking about that stuff in America, I didn't realize it was going to catch on in Australia so quickly. And then it did. At least there used to be kind of this like smaller liberal sense of some kind of protection that some ideas you know, just can't be said out loud. Hmm. And then once that's broken, it's, then it's, you can say anything. Um, and yeah, we crossed that line in, in Australia as well. And caught up in the middle of that, you have a community that has been kept on its toes for the last 15 years. So, the, I mean, the thing is, I just think the Muslim community is so young in Australia. It's never recovered from the shock of 9-11. And it's so small. We don't have a great history of organizing politically. Again, because, you know, we've just been in this defensive mode and, you know, but we'll just have to learn quickly. <laughs> it's going to be a steep learning curve. We're going to have to survive. Mm. And, that's a, and that's what it's about, survival. Now, it is absolutely about survival now. It's not about acceptance. It's not about more Muslims on television. This, 
this next phase will be about, you know, survival. That sounds like a lot, I know. But many of the people I spoke to in Australia echoed the very same feeling. Things are getting worse. And it's getting hard to separate what being Muslim means to them from what it means to everybody else. Yasser Mursi is a lecturer at Latrobe University. He's studying the effects of Islamophobia on ordinary Muslims. If you study the cycle of a Muslim's life, um, every part of it can be brought into um, a dispute. Uh, the amount of children we have becomes a symptom of how we're overpopulating society, uh, what our children are learning, or what pathway they may be taking to being radicalized. So even at an early age, you're under suspicion. Um, the food we eat, halal, the clothes we wear, the lengths of our beard, the language we use, the company we keep, the politics we have, almost every aspect of the cycle of a Muslim's life, and even to the point where the one part that maybe be ignored is... is is when we die. <laughs> Muslim deaths are less registered in the public imagination psych if you look at places like Syria. Ironically, that's the one part that's cared less about. Mm. Every other aspect of a Muslim cycle is scrutinised. Following a recent poll which showed 49% of Australians want to ban Muslim immigration, Yasser wrote a provocative response in The Guardian, saying he agreed. For him, the word Muslim wasn't something that was real anymore but part of the vocab of the war on terror he now felt dispossessed from, one that now meant violent, suspect, terrorist. If you want to ban that, go ahead. He tells me the story about when he was hanging out with a group of his friends. I don't know, we were all talking and chattering about football or politics or something. This guy's, I don't know, it's just some everyday conversation. And a car drove past and screamed out terrorist. And all of us turned around as if somebody called out our name, right? Mm. I use this as an example often because similarly the war on terror doesn't you don't have to agree with anything but the way the word Muslim is used it calls you out it even has nothing to do with you nothing to do with the world that you belong to nothing to do with the Islam that you identify with you're a million miles away from what's going on but the continual use of the word Muslim drags you into this debate mm. and it, when it drags you in it's the certain conditions that it demands from you a certain vocabulary that it asks you to engage with and barter with and exchange you seem like you are exhausted <laughs> thanks bro <laughs> <laughs> yes well you know I've had worse compliments <laughs> um, yes yes I am yeah. I am emotionally absolutely uh you ever look back in your life and you think, wow, I remember that young kid who was just um, fearless? I miss him. I'm so less fearless. I'm, I'm deeply paranoid. And it comes from believing that you are continually watched, uh, not just by state instruments, but by other Muslims, by yourself, in the mirror, by your neighbours, by your work colleagues. You're speaking um, you know, from your own individual experience. But pulling that out then, as the Muslim community, if they constantly feel like they're being watched, how do they deal with that pressure? It's not just an individual experience, absolutely, but it's osmosis, man. Like, I know I speak to brothers and they tell me stories and then you can't help but um, adopt their emotional state. You can't. We kind of collectively bring ourselves into this sense of um, apprehension. A while ago, there was this idea of six degrees of separation. I don't know if you know what is like. You know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Eventually, you know Barack Obama, like within six people. 
Well, the Muslim community is one, two, three degree of separation, either from abject poverty, somebody who's gone off to fight for a jihadi organization, somebody who's imprisoned by a despotic regime, somebody who's been harassed by the police. We're, we're not that far away from knowing somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Yeah. And that there's community links, bonds that inevitably you feel, breakdowns. I've, I've met mothers whose sons have been taken away. Um, I've met young, the same brothers who had to deal with the psychological issue of A, being harassed by police, but B, hearing their leaders, community leaders, go out and blame them for not adhering to some abstract, wonderful Islam. You just absorb it. It's, the part, it's, it's what your heart is made to do, absorb. I have one question left for you. Um, what brings you hope from the Muslim community? Oh, my God. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> I'll get back to you in six months, bro. I'll keep looking. Um, hope. Oh, wow. The religion itself brings me hope. God himself brings me hope. Uh, if you ask me about the Muslim community, there is a generosity uh, lurking beneath all the fear and the concern. There is also a bravery and a resilience, an optimism that drives me mad. And I think given the right conditions, these can be parts of us that lead us forward what needs to be done then is for us to learn once again to love one another one thing that racism has taught me is that it embodies you with a lot of self-hatred you don't always know it you can't always trace it you can't always see it but it surrounds you you distrust and dislike for your own but there is an opportunity for us to, to recognize that we're in it together and that fosters the opposite of self-hatred and that is the self-love now it may seem a thousand miles away but you see glimmers of it here and there having dinner with you tonight we can laugh we did laugh and other brothers around us laughed because there's a tragedy in the shared sense of um, communal struggles that we go through um, we can laugh about our futures and detention centers <laughs> as an act of optimism right because it's, it's, it's a particularity of who we are and there will be fondness in memories of these conversations. Uh, they're fleeting, they go, but I, if, if you ask me what gives me hope, being put under this much pressure, and inshallah will melt away the dirt and bring out the gold. How far does the war on terror stretch? And how has it affected the communities that couldn't be further removed from the attacks on September 11? In the final episode of Public Enemy, I returned home to New Zealand and meet the man who single-handedly sparked a national conversation on Islam and terrorism. This episode of Public Enemy was produced by me, Muhammad Hassan, for RNZ. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our engineer is Jeremy Ansel. You can find us online at rnz.co.nz, on iTunes and on Spotify. Don't forget to rate us and share with your friends. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.